morning, good afternoon, and good evening, and welcome to another version, version, edition, whatever, of the Rejath Podcast. <laughs> we hope you're well. I am Will Stevenson, your co-host, uh, and I am joined, as always, by the very cheery-looking Romina Ramos. How are you doing? Cheery. Hello. I like that. I just think you, you look quite cheery today. <laughs> good. Good. That's a good thing. Uh, hello. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm. Uh... I'm not going to say I'm tired. I'm a little bit tired, but I'm 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 surprisingly not as tired as I have been in the last few weeks. I think uh, oh, there's a me. there's a, there's a normality going back uh, coming back. Yeah. Yes. There's a sort of normality. Hey, there's peace and normality. There's yes. peace and normality. That's really good. Yeah. The house feels like oh. a house now, and our sofa's mm. arriving tomorrow. So, I think Amazing. yeah, yeah, life's going back to normal. I feel good. How are you, I mate? feel like we've, we, yeah, yeah, man, I'm okay. I am. I'm very excited for the six week holidays um, to try and just have some creative time back. I've been absolutely packed full of stuff, but I've got to talk about last night or two nights ago, as you're listening to this. Um, Switchblade with uh, Lou Mack and Jay Daniel West, and oh my god, it was amazing. I'm not gonna rub it in. That one of my favourite headline performances I've ever seen at any event. Amazing. I just took a seat on the bench and I was like, yeah, I don't care. This isn't our event. I'm just happy to, I'd have paid good money to go and see them. So to have them come and headline, it was oh, incredible. Absolutely buzzing about it. They were amazing. And so was everyone. It was packed out. I don't know what's going on. Something in the water or something in the minute. There was like 40 plus people there. Yes. Just um, really busy. All the seats were filled. A uh, few first timers, few returnees, brilliant performances all around. Special shout out to uh, to Jack uh, with his with his camera, Jack Coverdale. Uh, yes, there Pol- doing poets, poets on, on Polaroid. Polaroid. Yes, yes, amazing. We have to. Have you got one of those yet? Yeah, yeah. He came to Natter and he, last Natter last month, and he did that, and it was uh, he did he did Natter. Uh, everyone got involved. Yeah. Yeah, it was such a great thing. I love it. I love that project. So fun, and he, he, it's the it's the on the moment uh, of it, and the not being able to see and all of that. And yeah, I really really liked it. And my photo's cute. Yeah, Although I've got yeah. no eyes because of the reflection. <laughs> Just like a beard and hair. That's all I am. Um, but yeah, shout out Jack, and his performance was excellent as well. Oh, he I has leveled Jack. up his his game like as a performer. Um, I really, really enjoyed him. Go and see Jack Coverdale if you get a chance. Cause yes, absolutely. That boy's going places. Yeah, I love. Really enjoyed it. I've I've only caught him a couple of times, but um, every time he's blown me away. He's like he's mm. got such a good uh, delivery and and stage presence. Yeah, love him. So do you know what? Jack. What made me and we'll stop. We'll stop just picking up Jack in a second. But what really <laughs> blew me away is that he did. He did like stage presency stuff with the swapped poem so like the poem ended on a line about putting his phone down and he did like a hand gesture acting thing of putting his phone and i was like that's not even your poem <laughs> like wow, wow and pinky was amazing sarah was amazing sarah brought us some jam which was brilliant shout out to sarah id who brought us love some that. jam which what a gift for an open mic night jam, yeah that's love it. lovely More jam at poetry nights please um, yes, so please. yeah, Switchblade w- went off and uh, we've got a very exciting announcement coming about August's event, uh, which I'll tell you about off mic and I'll tell the rest of you about next week. Um, but I'm yes, really please. excited about it. Lovely, <laughs> lovely, 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 lovely stuff. Very nice. Um, news. I've got, I've not got news. No, I do have news. 
a couple of a couple of episodes back with uh, Lulu from Poetry to Your Ears, I mentioned mm. that uh, I was going to start translating my grandmother's old recipes from Portuguese mm. into English, and I've started doing that, and yes. it's been really fun. It's been, and it's it's sort of. I've not been able to do anything creative for ages. I've not been able to write any new things for a long time. And uh, it's been really nice to do that um, and to kind of like connect with the language and translate Amazing. it. And, and I, I know that if you follow me on social media, you've seen the photo on my, um, on my story and there was a di dictionary there, but I have not had to break that open yet. I've been able to do it all by myself, which is amazing. Really? Wow. That must be, you must be so proud of that. That's amazing. Yeah. I mean, I'm not going to like big myself up too much because the recipes are fairly like basic. Obviously, I know what eggs is and flour yeah, 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 is yeah. and all those things. Sure. Um, but even the ones that have a lot of... My grandma, because she was a baker, all the recipes, they don't have any... Um, I know I'm mumbling, but I'll, I'll, I'll just tell you this. They don't have any methods. They just have the ingredients. So you're like, right. we've got loads of ingredients for loads of different cakes, but it's like, we just have to guess how to make it. <laughs> but... <laughs> The have ones that do have, no, Nat's going to, we've got the stuff in, Nat's going to make some stuff over the next few days because she's been dead yes. excited. She's been begging me to translate them for ages. Um, but yeah, just to wow. quickly say what that. Wow, amazing thing. Yeah, just to quickly say that the ones that do have methods, one or two, I, the, I translated the whole thing without a dictionary and I'm very proud of that. <laughs> yeah, we're clicking. We're clicking. That's amazing. I'm so yeah. excited. Right, I've, I'm really buzzing. We need a, a little cake review. So, <laughs> I think. Yeah, forward. absolutely. <laughs> right, do you want to um, tell everyone who we're chatting to today? Yes, absolutely. So, we are talking to Adam Farah, uh, the author of the sort of creative nonfiction memoir piece, Cold Fish Soup which is an amazing read about his experience growing up on the coast of England, um, about his mother appearing on um, Britain's Got Talent in a rather unusual way, um, <laughs> and about, about about that seaside experience as a young lad and about masculinity and coming to terms with yourself, owning um, who you are and uh, learning to, to love that. It, it's a really brilliant book. Uh, we both heartily recommend it, I think. Yes, yes, such a good read. Uh, I've I've seen pieces of that live, um, yeah. which was an experience, a brilliant experience. I saw him headline verbose, uh, but reading it is a whole it, reading it as a whole package is uh, yeah, it's a great experience. Definitely go get it. Yeah, one hundred percent. So we'll leave you with that. Please uh, sit back and enjoy. It. Actually, you can see all the crap in the background, but don't judge me. No, never. I mean, look at that. Like, It's not as bad as the uh, random pieces of <laughs> yellow foam that I've got in the background. It looks good. It's soundproofing. It just sounds fucking horrible. <laughs> well, I did a, um, one of these sessions with someone from New Writing North, and they had like a, just a beautiful setup behind them. It's like interior design masterpiece and she said oh yeah it's just everything outside of this shot is chaos and she learned through lockdown just to have this beautiful <laughs> setting behind her but yeah we're all living in weird little box rooms and just getting by is it a christmas tree i can see in the back it is yeah my um <laughs> my, my father-in-law made it he makes he he's incredible like um 
he built his own house. He's a mechanic. He uh, he comes here and does DIY and fixes stuff and like built a new part of the kitchen. Like he's just this incredible guy, and he just built that tree out of bits of driftwood and he put lights in it and stuff. It's amazing because he's he is. I was, t- I was talking to um, this writer Wes Brown who'd written a book um, called Breaking Kayfabe about wrestling. Like it's part memoir, part novel. And we ended up chatting about positive images of masculinity because there aren't a lot of them. And my father-in-law was a firefighter, built his own house, and he's a a mechanic. And it's like, these these are like bloke things that that were like positives and i can't do any anything like that so i'm always really happy for him to come in and just you know, shame me because you know yeah, it's yeah, fine yeah. stuff gets done yeah and you've got it then. i mean you don't you don't need to do it you just need to know one manly man sort of yeah you need to know a person <laughs> yeah I'm the same. I'm really, I'm really crap at DIY, but my girlfriend is amazing at it. She's just like anything that needs fixing, she just finds a way and learns how to do it. If she doesn't know how to and does it, it's brilliant. I'm not that way inclined. Yeah, <laughs> I see. As long as they want to, you know, you're sort of artistic and creative, and yeah. you've got you've got your skills. It's that's how I see myself. Yeah, you know, I'm just <laughs> yeah. I'm decorative. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Right, so let's kick off uh, into the interview. Uh, it's, it's just a normal, ch- informal chat. We'll just get to know you, ask you a few questions. Uh, but here at the redraft, we always go right back to the beginning. Yeah. Um, so we'd love to hear a little bit about where you grew up, how that was, like what that was like for you, like your experience with high school, things like that. Oh, yeah. I suppose most writers, when you speak to them, you mention high school, they probably say, <laughs> I had a terrible time because yeah. that's the the classic um experience but mine yeah i had a terrible terrible high school period um and yeah massively massively bullied and cornered became this sort of terribly desperate suicidal teenager um yeah classic classic writer spent a lot of time hiding in the library from yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> from bigger boys and um <laughs> i moved to east yorkshire when I was 16 and yeah, so I've covered a lot of this kind of stuff in my, in my book, but I like, I thought oh, if I moved, moved to the North where no one knows me, I can reinvent myself and become like a cool guy and make up a, a backstory and become like shed all of that uncomfortable past, reinvent myself and become the person that I'd always wanted to be. Um, and that for various reasons that didn't work out because yeah. you can't run away from yourself and you are still just, <laughs> the same sort of sad desperate person you were mm. anywhere so um yeah i went through college went to art college decided to become an illustrator i um realized that i wasn't good enough to be an illustrator because you, you find yourself at college alongside all these talented people it's like okay i'm gonna become a sculptor because <laughs> fewer people are doing that and it looks a bit easier and you can get away with being a bit lazy did that for yeah. a bit and then discovered music. I was like, right, I'm going to become a rock star. This is the thing that I'm going to be. Like, I'm going to become a musician. Tried that for years and years and years. And for most of the time that I was trying to be a musician, I was writing uh, music reviews and going to gigs and stuff and finding my way into concerts f- for free. That was my, my, uh, my way of getting to see bands. 
And mm -hmm. I'd write these reviews, and my editor, Wendy, at this uh, magazine I was submitting to, she's like, I, th I think you might be better at um, writing than music. Yeah. And I didn't want to hear that, so I ignored her and ignored her. And then it probably wasn't until I was about kind of 38 that I started to wow. realize that music wasn't for me. I'm not musician shaped, I am writer shaped mm. and started to focus more on my own writing. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I, 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 I can carry on at this point. Do you want me to keep going? <laughs> Just, I know you. I know you were you. You related to what Adam said there about the gig review and everything like that. Um, but I just wanted to ask. Yeah. When you were in, just really quickly circling back to high school, did you were you did yeah. were you like engage? Did you engage with like literature and and the English that was being taught to you back then, or was that kind of, as you say, a lot later in life? It was. It was later, really. I'd I read a lot when I was younger, like right. independently. Um, so I, I, yeah, I've got really into fantasy stuff and, um, I'd like my, my favorite book when I was like seven was the Lion, the witch and the wardrobe. And I was really into that, that kind of cool. stuff. And then later on discovered Sue Townsend and the Adrian Mole books who I like super related to Adrian Mole, even though he had a girlfriend and <laughs> that, was, that was nothing that was on my radar. But um, yeah, I didn't. I didn't really engage with reading until yeah, I was probably in my twenties when I started focusing on it again. Because I read, I read lots of yeah. music stuff, like I read, read music press and read lots of music biographies. But I really fell back into reading in my twenties with writers like Elmore Leonard and P.G. Woodhouse. I was introduced to P.G. Woodhouse, oh. and for ages, in fact, I was trying to my. When I decided that I wanted to be a writer, I thought, right, okay, the perfect way to become a successful writer is to somehow mash what P.G. Woodhouse does into what Elmore Leonard does. I was trying to work out how to do this funny sort of whimsical crime stuff. Wasted years doing that, like best part of 10 years trying to write a crime novel. And then ended up writing um, memoir pieces on a blog because someone said, yeah, you, you're always telling me these, these stories and banging on and giving you know, telling me these anecdotes. Why don't you write some of them down? Started sharing those. And it's the only bit of, apart from the, the music writing, it's the only area of my writing that anyone seemed to care about. And it was like, tell us more of these, these very exposing detailed stories about embarrassing <laughs> stuff that happened to you. And that's, that's what really encouraged me to get back into reading and writing and throw my whole life into literature because I got some positive feedback and I respond oh, well yeah. to positive feedback. Yeah, well, let's touch on the music side of things because that is very much the one very much writing that free ticket is, is, is the, you know, the number one inspiration, I think. You, yeah, yeah. Gigs are expensive. Especially, so expensive, especially from an area, so I was in Nest and then Grimsby and then eventually Manchester. Until I got to Manchester, it was, you know, to Nottingham to see these gigs and it was a commute. It was to save the money on the ticket itself was massive. So what what was some strong memories from that time? Can you the first time that you ever reviewed? Uh, yeah, God, I'm trying to think because I did so many because we would go out. Once you realise you can get free tickets by calling yeah. up PR people who are normally just happy that someone is getting in touch, you, you go and see four or five bands in a week um 
but so I can't remember who I first saw live, but I remember the first interview because I interviewed. Well, have you heard of Have you heard of Mark Lanigan? Yes. Yeah. 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 He was my first interview, and he wow. was my my absolute hero, and I couldn't believe they let me yeah go to his gig for free, and to meet him, and he was just. I th- I later found out from reading his memoir that I met him when he was he'd been living on the streets for a while and was just sort of recovering. So shaking his hand, it felt like shaking hand with a ghost. It was like really sort of this strange sort of ethereal experience. But I sat interviewing him, completely fanboying. His bass player was this guy from Soundgarden, this enormous bloke called Ben Shepard, who just sat there, looks like a serial killer, and just sat there staring at me the whole time while I'm trying to compose myself with this, with my absolute hero. But once I'd done that, it's like these experiences when you like you, you you guys will know this when you first get onto a stage and perform in front of someone. That first time is really traumatizing and you're terrified. And then you get through it and realize that it wasn't so bad, and you want to do it again. And that's how it was with with that first interview. It's like oh, okay, like I made a bit of an idiot of myself, but not not too bad. And I met this. I met one of my heroes. He was nice yeah. to me, and. So yeah, it really encouraged me to do more of that stuff. I interviewed the the darkness. Yeah, and you do just feel like like I I felt more inexperienced talking to musicians than any other aspect of life. Be that performing on a stage, hosting gigs, putting the ball out, anything. I felt absolutely out of touch. Yeah, there's so much blagging involved in that stuff because they really don't they really don't know who, where anyone is coming from. I mean, when when I interviewed the the darkness, they were. They were in the middle of a feud with the enemy who had said, I think someone from the enemy had said they needed to be killed. So the only thing that they were concerned about was whether I was from the enemy or not. And when they realized I wasn't, they were completely nice to me and it was all fine. But yeah, that these these it's funny when you get these sort of imposter syndrome moments and you have to sort of push through them and go, you know, you have to you have to blag your way through these things. And that's the same with any kind of writing as well. I've blagged my way through so much stuff. And come out the other side, and you've you've succeeded. Yeah, it reminds me of like um, there's this there's, there's this episode in Friends that I'm obsessed with, um, where Joe is like anything they ask you because he's an actor and he goes to auditions. He's like anything they ask you, can you do? You say yes and learn how to later. <laughs> and I feel and I feel like that's a little bit with those like when we try to get commissions and and stuff like this. It's kind of like you, you've got to blag it a little bit and just say yeah, I can do this, and then just kind of figure it out as you go along. Yeah, I th- I think that's for certain for certain writers of a certain background. If you haven't got like established contacts and you know I've got I've got no family in the publishing industry. Yeah, you have to kind of make your own opportunities, don't you? And just chance your arm. And yeah, of course. Make contacts with people, and it, it is really surprising how far going out of your comfort zone. You know, being a kid who was traumatized at high school, and it was like it was built in that I was shy and retiring, and felt really comfortable talking to uh, uncomfortable talking to people. And then suddenly, you're like, no, I'm going to have to become gregarious. I'm going to have to become everything that I'm naturally not. Yeah, and it pays dividends. You know. But it's, um, yeah, I think it's the only way yes. we survive. I'm still learning this because I'm a terrible salesperson. Like, I hate sell Just in red, in general, like, even at work, like, I, I hate upselling because I feel like I'm bothering people and we're, we're in, in 
in tough times at the moment <laughs> and my boss is always like you know yeah. but I understand the business side of it and I understand that it's a part of the job I kind of hate doing it but when it comes to myself I just I'm learning but I, I hate having to sell myself it's it's I was talking to another poet today about this and you know she said the same she said it's like we, we, we have to start to like kind of market ourselves don't we like to just to get opportunities and stuff but it's a part of the job and we, we've as you say you just got to push through and and learn to be okay with that it makes you queasy as well like i, I know that yeah because well, i don't know i've not noticed it as much with um american writers but british writers hate promoting themselves they feel really mm. uncomfortable about it and it's such a massive part of the job and otherwise you like if you don't keep yourself visible there's always more writers there's always more more books and more more things to grab people's attention so you have to be you have to sort of engage with like like promoting my book i try and find a new and creative way way to post about it every day knowing that okay it's probably going to cost me some followers on twitter but if i lose those followers they probably weren't going to buy my book anyway which is the most important thing to me at the moment. And if you, if, I think if you keep it up, people eventually go, oh, I keep seeing that book. He keeps talking about it. I'll give it a try. And yeah. they're a bit like, I've been pushing this book for a year now. And I had someone just this week go, yeah, I finally bought, I finally bought your book because I keep seeing it on my timeline. It's like, yeah, it's the, it's the long game. But also you, you, um, you don't fade away because you push another thing you sort of push through go okay i'm gonna be the promotion guy i'm gonna be the the bloke who adds a load of people in and put some hashtags in and tries to jump on a current trend just to try and get some attention on my my thing and it you know mm. it, it's annoying that it works because it means we've got to keep yeah. doing it <laughs> yeah yeah Another just just another thought on what you said before about like networking and stuff i, I was listening to a podcast yesterday um, about how some guy came up. Um, I don't even know who he is. It just came up on, on online, and I started watching it. But it's a really a phrase stuck with me. It's like your network circle is your currency, and it's like you know if you know people and if you put in the work as well, um, it's another way of like you know getting opportunities because like a lot of the time if someone goes oh do you know someone who could do this and you go yes I know the guy that could write that story and. Or, you know, another guy, you could do that interview or whatever it may be. And it's all, I think that's as well another, like, as well as obviously marketing yourself and, and all these things, it's like the other big player in, in our sort of world. It's like networking and, and getting out there and doing the gigs and, and going to the shows and, and talking to people. It's so important as well. That's, yeah, I think that's, that's really true. Like, mm. you guys know the power of spoken word and how that, that works, you know photographs of you you get all over the place and you get invited yeah. to do more shows like when someone someone learns that you're reliable you get a reputation you can go and do more and more shows and that's that's how i i came up you know like i ended up going to uh bad language in the castle um did verbose in all the various places that verbose has been like any sort of spoken word night i just jump on it because i made connections with writers that way because i had i didn't study you know creative writing i i came at it through this this side entrance mm. and there were people that i made connections with who've been so pivotal in my writing career like i met jen ashworth who is like an incredible 
writer, this amazing mind. Met her through a spoken word show. She became my mentor writing my book. I ended up teaching with her at Lancaster earlier on in this year. You know, there's all this stuff that my life would be completely different had I not met her. And I wouldn't have met her without just going, well, I'm going to have to do spoken word. I'm going to have to go on a stage. I'm going to have to do this thing. It feels awful, yeah. but I, I feel like there's something important on the other side of it. And there, and there was. Yeah. That's amazing. It's funny that that, that world is, the world does seem more focused towards poetry rather than mm. any other medium of right. So script writing, for example, I don't know where you would go and, scratch nights and things like that but it's definitely more of a mainstream thing when it comes to poetry yeah than anything else, I think. yeah it's, it's funny that there used to be a, a night in um in the castle called first draft where you could literally work out first draft stuff on stage and see if it it was working out for you and it was open to non-fiction music scripts like plays like there was mm. it was so broad so i met people who now um write for uh, Radio 4, and uh, not right uh, yeah, Radio 4, they've written for Channel 4, they've um, written stuff for Audible, like, they're script writers, but they cut their teeth on stage. And it's really, this amazing thing about mm. the Manchester spoken word scene and what's available to, to writers there, it's so fertile. And in fact, um, I'm just gonna go off on one and keep talking until you tell me to stop. But to, I had a um, an MA student from, uh, yeah, a creative writing MA student get in touch with me and she said, I'm doing this um, dissertation on uh, Northern publishing and opportunities for Northern writers. And I explained how spoken word in the Northwest had been pivotal in my career and that I'd been inspired by so many like incredibly talented people. Like you see, you go to these nights and you just go, God, they're amazing. Wouldn't it be great to be as good as them? And that really spurs you on. And ended up talking about you guys and the other people that I've seen at Verbose and other nights in Manchester, because you're, you're the next wave of inspiring writers that are coming up. It's like, it's as strong as it ever was. And there's this constant revolving door of new, amazing, talented people that are appearing. And I find that I find that so inspiring that we've we've got something fertile here, really supportive writing communities where everyone is happy for each other's successes. It's amazing. Mm. Yeah, it's so true. And also, oh, you're too kind. <laughs> yeah, you are too kind. But that's also, it's like, I think also like attending these nights is like pivotal in the sense that you kind of workshopping work as well, aren't you? And you've got like immediate feedback. Yeah, uh, which is which is so helpful when you're like developing work. Like when I first started doing gigs, I thought I had to just bring my polished poems. But I, I very quickly learned that you can, if I just bring a work in progress and read that, it's just it's fine, and people and I will get the feedback, and I can I can test it out, see if it's working, change it up, come back the next week, do it again, and. And it's it's really helpful because writing is such a like solitary thing most of the time that these like nights and these spaces are really important for us as writers. I think. Yeah, no, that's that's I found exactly the same thing. Like because I wasn't part of a writing group, yeah. and it had I don't know I was weirdly shy about directly showing someone my work. Like it's hard to 
email someone one of your stories and then just wait. But if, weirdly, the more perilous thing of getting up in front of a room full of strangers and just trying it out and hoping that you make a joke and they laugh or they're affected by a certain line that you've written. And you kind of learn straight away, like, oh, you know, I I thought that was funny, but no, no, <laughs> scratch that out, try again, try the same, you know, the tweaked piece at another night. And it's, it's so, I think it allows you to progress really quickly as a writer. You develop a real pace because you've had that baptism of fire with your work. Yeah. I've had the opposite. <laughs> I've had the opposite experience in in the sense that um, I've I've often like read like this one or two poems that it's happened on, and I've and they're quite like very personal, and and I find them maybe a little sad or whatever, and I've read them out and like people are oh, that was really funny, and I was like oh was it? <laughs> it's just my trauma. It's fine. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's 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 funny, isn't it? Well, I had a, um, a guy. Um, he said because he'd seen me quite a few times performing he said when whenever you read a story you always get to me to a point where i think i'm going to cry and then you just lift me up at the end and save me and i thought that's a great thing to be told and now that's the thing that i keep in my head like okay i can go very deep and dark and get into some you know difficult stuff as long as i give the reader or the person in the audience that little save at the end it's like yeah. it's all right because <laughs> i'm not dead or whatever <laughs> like I'm, I'm clearly reading you this story and it and it's you can you can take an audience on a journey and that's that's an amazing thing to do yeah and it's a, it's a different aspect of of writing it's one of the most powerful bits of it i think yeah yeah 100 percent. i i hadn't i never thought about the reader in that aspect until i put together the manuscript to my pamphlet and I was talking to, um, you know, my mentor at the time, uh, Ben Wilkinson, and about ordering and all these things. And he really made me think about, you know, you want to take the reader on a journey, like the book is small, poetry obviously is a little different than uh, fiction or creative non-fiction. So it's, it's very small, isn't it? And it's like, you, you want, these people don't know you and there's got to be a reason that they're going to connect with the work. And it it's, mm. it's has to be like, you have to take them on a ride so I, 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 when I've, when I've always written for myself as a form of therapy, of understanding my emotions and all this sort of stuff, but yeah, putting together the manuscript is the first time that I was actually thought about the reader as like their own person, <laughs> if that yeah, makes sense. Was, so did you ever have someone in mind, like uh, the ideal person that you wanted to be reading your, your work? I guess like a younger self. Like, I, cause as I said, I've always written, like, my stuff is very personal. It's very, it's all about me growing up or uh, not having a, a present father or immigrating or not speak, you know, learning to speak English or all these things, like, really, really personal. And it's, it's me, like, in later life, just coming to terms with it and making sense of it all in my head. Um, so I've never written for someone. I've never sat down and thought, oh, you know, like, it's never been that sort of way for me. But yeah. oh, your really experience isn't you like it is unique. Obviously, your your own no, no, very specific it's not, experience. It's but not it's really a lightning unique. rod. It's a lightning rod, isn't it? Of anybody who's a migrant from any part of the world to any other part of the world, anybody who doesn't have a present father for whatever reason, and that's why people think my father in an athlete is funny because for them they live in the metaphorical layer of it, whereas you live in, yeah, the, yeah, in yeah. the literal layer of it. But that idea 
as a metaphor, is really funny, regardless of the truth of it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, no, I get that. I, I found that one a little strange. Now I understand like what exactly what you've just explained, but at first I just thought I didn't get it because it was like the only reason that metaphor exists is because that the only the only thing that I knew for years and years and years about my father at all, other than his name, which is in my birth certificate, was the fact that he was a footballer. So that's why he ended up. That's why the metaphor. Um, but I can see how it's worked out, and I could, how people like find it find it humorous and stuff. Like I can see that now. <laughs> That's an, another interesting thing, isn't it? You can't, you don't really have any control about how people engage with your work. Mm. So once you put it out there, you you can expect a certain response, but they will they will see like shadow, like things in the shadows of your words, really, that you just didn't yeah. consider at all. And there, yeah, there were things that you didn't expect them to find funny that they do. And it's like that's another exciting thing that that happens. Like when I was reading. I think you might have seen me read my uh, that story about my my mum's burlesque yeah. troupe, mm-hmm. and when I wrote that, I just thought, well, no one else can write a story like that because <laughs> no one else's mum has been on Britain's Got Talent taking her clothes off, and that seemed to be my unique thing. But then I would encounter like people when I'm doing events and book tours and stuff, I'd find variations of my mum, like mums doing daring or interesting or unconventional things, and it's strange to uh to un- uncover other people's stories it's uh, but that that was an unintended consequence there's so many wonderful unintended consequences of of writing it's the greatest yeah absolutely i always say sorry will i keep cutting you off <laughs> um i, I always we're, say we're desperate that... to talk today but <laughs> yeah sorry sorry <laughs> um it never usually happens adam because <laughs> yeah, no. uh, well, i you yeah you honestly you have to just hold your hand up and i'll stop talking that's how they, that's how they have to work <laughs> No, but I always say, like, like Will said, like my my experience isn't unique. It, it, it's quite it's a un, universal um, experience. Uh, but I but I think that's true to most things. I think I think that mm. if you want a poem to relate to yourself bad enough, you can find a way. Even if the poem, like on the on our episode with Henry Normal, has got an episode that I really related to. It made me think about when my grandma passed away and um, my granddad's uh, moved out of the house that they shared for years and years and years because it was too big for him and all these things. And then I spoke to Henry about it and Henry was like, oh, it was about me being heartbroken at 20 and my first breakup. And I was like, it's, it wasn't at all the same sentiment, but at the same time, it was still like loss and loss is a universal thing. So, yeah, yeah I think if it. you want to bad enough, you can relate to anything. Definitely. It's that idea of author and intent and death of the author and all of that sort of stuff like which is interesting when it comes into creative nonfiction because this is just your life and we'll get onto the book properly in the second half once we have a break with the zoom but to what extent does it feel weird to have put out these facts about your own life with you know a bit of creative freedom and then to have people sort of go yeah I thought that was great when that happened or wit or terrible or you know to have those reactions to it it is, it's, it's funny actually because I've never felt um, uncomfortable with having personal details out in the world and published. And I know it's a lot of um, fiction writers will basically write their, their life story, but they'll yeah. it'll be like, they'll put a novel out, 70% is true, a bunch of names have been changed, maybe someone gets murdered and that's the difference to, to their, <laughs> their real life. But I, 
yeah, I, I sort of, once I latched onto writing memoir, I was like, okay, how can I mind myself for more and more embarrassing or weird <laughs> stuff? And where, and then you start to go, well, where is, where is the, the real sort of juice in, um, my stories because I'm not I'm not even the most famous person in my family so I, I, there's a certain sort of yeah I've got I've got to look for particularly interesting stuff and the the only way that um I could find that was to go deeper and go into emotions and challenging things and the worst times of my life and that's where there's a lot of the power of um memoir and creative nonfiction is that you you tell those stories that are so exposing that they sort of hit people on a fundamental level in a way that maybe other forms of writing can't. So people who have had suicidal ideation will message me. Like I get a couple of messages a week, like DMs and emails and various things from people saying, oh, I, I grew up in a seaside town and I wanted to die every day for about five years. And I hard related to that chapter in your book. And that, that felt like something that was kind of magic to me to have done that. Um, and there was, there's, there's a bit, yeah, there's a bit in, um, the book where I talk about wanting to be Steven Tyler, the lead singer from Aerosmith and was like attempting to physically transform myself into him. And when I did my first event in London, I'm signing books and the guys were coming up to the, the table and going, my Steven Tyler was Eddie Van Halen. My Steven Tyler was Slash from Guns N' Roses. Mine was Freddie Mercury. And they all had this, all these guys, sensitive guys who turn up to book events. Yeah. They all had a template they were trying to you know, put over, over themselves to make themselves into a bigger, better version. Oh, absolutely. And that was, Mine was Gerard Way. <laughs> yeah, yeah so this is it. Like we're, we're, we're all looking Keep for going. the answer. And Mine was Avril Lavigne. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> and I weirdly thought that's that's my unique experience. It's like nice. No, every insecure person <laughs> has wanted to be someone else at a certain time, and that's <laughs> yeah, that's kind that's kind of powerful. Obviously, really enjoy Goldfish Soup, um, and reading through it. I wanted you to talk us a little bit about how it came to be published in this book that I'm holding in my hands right now, because it's quite an interesting story. Yeah, I mean, it's because I, I started writing this book with some Arts Council funding a few years ago, and it it was it was it was important to me to write about um, Withensee, the town where I spent my establishing years, my my formative years, on the East Yorkshire coast. Like I thought it was a place that was really interesting, mm. and it was tumbling in the sea because of catastrophic erosion and no one seemed to care that that was happening so it's like i want to write stories about this place i want it to be i want everyone to know that this place is really important so i set about spending months doing research and working with a mentor and writing this book and by the end of it like basically three years of writing i realized that i'd spent my life writing a book about a place that no one cares about so why should they care about the book and i was a bit like oh god what have i done what have i have i wasted my life and I was sending it off to publishers and trying to get agents. And some people were kind of um, supportive, but not for us. And there was a lot of just complete silence from from agents. And I was like, 
really losing losing faith in it. Um, and then I decided I'm just going to submit it to Northern Writers Awards um, as almost like a last ditch effort, really. And it ended up winning the Northbound Book Award, which is one of the one of the main prizes. You get a bunch of money, which is also that's a rarity in writing a bunch of money <laughs> and a publishing deal right? and with Saraband, who are a great mm -hmm. northern publishers based in Salford, really like a, a publisher that I already had my eye on. It's like it'd be great to be published by them when I was first scouting around for, for agents. And they they saw that the judging panel for that award saw all of the magical things about that coastline that I saw. They they really liked the um, like the paranormal stuff that I'd written about in there. Uh, my mum's burlesque troupe, my elderly dog, like all of these elements that I'd worked so lovingly into, <laughs> into this book. And it's fi finally, it was this, this um, amazing sense of validation that actually, yeah, I was on the right track. And what was the the most lovely thing is that, that they they described it as a love letter to the coastline where I yeah. you know where I spent my teens and that's what I wanted I wanted it to be seen as an, an honest tribute to that um, that coastline and when you've written something you hope it's going to land in a certain way and like basically everything I wanted that book to achieve the judges and subsequently readers have felt that thing and I'm like okay can I have can I do that again <laughs> this is the this is the challenge because we're coming up to a, a year of promoting that book like it came out last last August August 4th and um yeah I've just I've I've loved pushing this book like promoting this book and talking about it it's been absolutely life-changing and yeah it's just the most incredible thing that has has happened to me yeah absolutely it's it's um it's a joy to be able to read something that like you say is so viscerally english but so viscerally coastal as well and mm. we're a small country you know i feel like the coastal experience in general is is relatively similar throughout whether you look at blackpool or skegness or within sea or wherever it might be there are mm. elements of things that i have lived and experienced that i see in this book and it's it is a joy to see that also delivered really straight faced without this level of irony or I'm too good for this sort of thing that you might expect from someone who's moved out and, you know, has very little to do with the place really anymore. Mm -hmm. Which, yeah, I mean, it, story it, gone. It, is, it that was important. That was a, like an important note to strike really to, because I wanted it to go down well in the town. Like I didn't want to return to see, like go and visit my parents and be spat at in the street. Like I didn't, I didn't want to be seen as that guy. Um, but I was still wary because I'd been honest about the place as well. So it's a, it's a, you know, a northeast coastal town. So it's got no money. No one's investing in it because it's tumbling in the sea and will be gone in a hundred years. You know, it's got all these problems. Uh, so I was honest about some of those problems and some of the, uh, the sort of the mental health issues that flourish in a, environments like that. And when I went back to the town to do a signing in my the cafe where my sister works, um, it's like maybe I'm gonna people are gonna give me an earful. But I had like a queue going out the door. Never sold more books in any one time. There were people waiting, ready to to talk to me. And there's like guys asking me like, 
how's, how's your dad's health? Because I've written about my dad being ill. And he was suddenly part... It's like EastEnders for them. Because like, suddenly it was... <laughs> my, my family were part of a story they were interested <laughs> in. They wanted the latest update on my family. It's like, what's your mum doing? Is she doing more dancing? Has she got any more gigs booked? You know? And it, it was it was amazing. That was a, a really lovely experience to know that I'd... I'd, I'd not painted that uh, town in a, in a in a false way. You know, there was. We allowed, I presume we're allowed to swear on here. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, um, yeah there was yes. there was one guy who said because I'd mentioned uh, yeah, been honest about all these various problems the town had got, and he said, "Yeah, that's my shithole." Like he recognized there's a guy who lived in that town absolutely recognized it as the shithole that he lived in, and yeah. <laughs> and was kind of proud of it. Because we, <laughs> I think there would have, I would have lost a lot of um, trust with readers if I'd gone. Oh yeah, it's just this, this amazing place, you know, Golden Sands. It's like a seaside wonderland. Everyone should visit here, because it isn't. And I would get caught out the moment they turned up. But the weird thing is, people have been going there as a result <laughs> of this book. You know, mm. like some some PhD students from York. Um, went on a, a literary day trip. Like three of them went out there and they visited the lighthouse and they went to the cafe and the arcades and the beach. Wow. And it was, it's nuts like that that had happened, but they loved it. Like then they go, they're going back again. And lots of people have actually booked like weekends in that town because I think I was able to show them something special about it. Um, separate to the, uh, the poverty and the, the sadness that sort of hangs over the town. There's something else. Mm-hmm. They, the, the magic that I saw in it, they're able to see in it as a result of this book. And that's, you know, yeah, it's all magic. All this is magic to me. That's beautiful. You're f- yeah. Fixing you the local economy. For, isn't it? Once they put a tie. Mm. Yeah, I want a blue plaque. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, literally. <laughs> Maybe after the trilogy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. What sort of thing does come next? So we we touched on this earlier a little bit. It's classic second album problem. Is it? Do, do you yeah. get tempted to to move out of memoir or creative nonfiction? Is it different aspect of your life? It's yeah. I I I, I still at the moment only want to write memoir. You know, it's, it's I want, so I want to carry on writing um, more of these personal essays and the. The ones, the stories that I've been writing now, um, I've, got, I've probably got like almost almost thirty ideas for various various essays, but the strongest ones all seem to have these these ideas of um, yeah, sort of d- uh, disasters in masculinity. I think is the uh, the sort of broad thing. Like I'm terrible at fighting, so there's one about like, like the the last fight I had. Um, this is a whole essay about that. Um, and then, yeah, cause there was, there was a, a situation a few years ago where my, my friend Nigel got his bike stolen and he found out through Gumtree where it was. And then he announced on Facebook that he was going to go and get his bike back, uh, cause it's somewhere in Salford. It's like, Nigel's going to oh, get God. killed. Yeah. Like someone, and there was, no one was volunteering to go with him. It was like, okay, I think I'm going to have to volunteer to go and steal Nigel's bike back and I might have to get in a fight. I don't think it's stealing, is it? It's been stolen. He's just taking it. Yeah, it's like, it's, yeah, it's just reclaiming it. 
but this so we had to set, we set up this um this proposed sale that he was going to go and meet this guy oh, and this geez. this taxi driver john who was like a turned out he was a white collar boxer so he was someone who was um handy to have um with us he he took us and we met these these guys and nigel got out the car and he like looked at his um this bike and went yeah i really like that yeah i'll take it and he picked it up and went to put it in the car and this this lab was like what's going on what's going on and all of his mates started to pile out of the the flats and it got really <laughs> tense and i said oh my god like if if i have to say anything they're gonna hear that i'm quite scared actually because my voice would <laughs> it would my voice would definitely have done that but i'd worn um a hoodie like i got at a wrestling show that said like like heart stopping back breaking or something it had some sort of wrestling <laughs> slogan on it and I had my hands in my pockets. I was just trying to like puff myself up like a cat would in a, in a conflict. And we we managed to get out of that without getting badly injured. But it's like I've been made, I made notes about that years ago, and now it's like yeah, that story definitely fits in this collection of things that I did that were desperately pathetic but kind of funny. And there's something broader that I can write about them. It's like. Uh, like my first my first relationships um that were again calamity is a thing that i do quite well so the only thing i do is get things wrong um so the, yeah the relationship stuff there is um a story about the first um panic attack i had which is at wembley stadium at SummerSlam 92 Perfect. Uh, okay. in the, like in the middle of the opening match there i had this <laughs> this proper panic attack um and it was around the time when I was very paranoid and I was convinced that there were hidden cameras around spying on me. I had a very sort of weird mental break in, in high school. So there's a story there, you know. And so I've mm. found these um, these stories that are built around um, trying to work out my place in the world and what kind of person I was and um, yeah, develop into a develop into a man without without it going into any sort of terrible Andrew Tate kind of territory mm, every time you say masculinity really I immediately just think yeah it's like I want to see like the other side of things like it's okay to get yeah. things wrong it's okay to it's okay to not be in Romania and kicking people in the head and like doing all the bad <laughs> stuff that he's done like there, there there is another path and it's fine to you know <laughs> just calamity your way through through life but um yeah so I've, I've got all of these essays about I guess one I've, I've, I've written some notes down here. There's my first date was arranged by my mum when I was 19, and um, <laughs> I ended up going back to against this girl's house, and she gave me weed which I'd never spoke smoked before, and beer like a bit it was um, cider which I'd never drunk before, and I ended up getting really poorly and being sick all over her bed, and <laughs> having to leave, and it was just like that every step of the way along that story was just so tragic but yeah you know Come over on, time though. it just becomes yeah yeah Sounds yeah like quite I, a cool I, I, girl yeah yeah <laughs> yeah she she, well. she um yeah, yeah. yeah i think I, i've benefited from the women in my life who have helped me through things yeah so that there's a, there's a lot of that as well in this, as in the in the first book there's a lot of sort of paying tribute to mm. women who guided me and like got got me through things and it's I, i'm just trying to i'm trying to hit the same notes as i did in the first book which are serious broader topics 
you know, exploring some different ideas, keeping it entertaining, and having yeah this this rough theme. And it seems it seems to be working. And and I've got um, publishers interested in it now. So it seems like it it'll happen. Amazing. Because I didn't shut up about the first book. Like yeah, I've managed well, to keep selling. It, and it link it, that that idea of masculinity is more important than ever. It should be a, a word that we are actively reclaiming, you know. Yeah. And with some of the young people that I've worked with, we touched on earlier. It's so important to have these role models of actually this is what masculinity and that nonsense takes stuff. That's yeah irrelevant. That's you know it's nothing to do with how we present and are loved and be and, and love in the world which is the most important thing uh, having those healthy relationships with that term can only come from people talking about their own experiences and being upfront and upright about going yeah I've, <laughs> calamity but do you know what i'm still here i'm doing my passion i'm doing what i want to do and it's working out yeah <laughs> now i i think that's that that is the really it's, a, it's such an important thing it, do, it does like it's because not only we've got Andrew Tate we've got loads of people have gone he's making some traction let's be more like Andrew Tate yeah. and you've got more and more people that are following that path you need to have someone Not I'm not saying I'm the guy to fix it all but we need to have more people who are talking about other aspects that you know like, like we were saying before about positive male influences um, in our lives that are nothing to do with oppression of women or you know a big watch and a massive cigar and a, a ferrari that you've rented you know it's like this this weird sort of 14 year old boy's idea of what a bloke should be and there is um i think there's something reassuring in knowing that other people have got things wrong because mm. then you don't feel alone this is this is this is one of the things i learned from the first book by sharing these very 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 exposing intimate moments readers relate to them and they don't feel so alone and there's so much value in not feeling alone you know i I know what it was like to to feel like i'm completely alone in this world there's no one who's got it as bad as me you know you you have when you're much younger you have those kind of thoughts and i would have i would have yeah loved to have it's why it's why i liked adrian mole you know he was a complete dork he wasn't as smart as he thought he was he was bumbling his way through life and I related to it completely because that's what I was doing and yeah I just want to write write a book that makes that people feel the way Adrian Mole made me feel I suppose well that's what I was going to say you you asked Ramina earlier what who they were writing for who are you writing for my first book um I was writing partly for my family but I always keep my friend Zoe who was mentioned in the, in the book a few times she has got this an, like enormous sky-splitting laugh. So when you make a laugh, it's the most wonderful thing to hear. So every time I was r- trying to write something that was a bit funny, I thought, yeah, I'll keep her. I, I want to make Zoe laugh. That's the important thing. So she was someone I kept in my head the whole time. Um, and she's still there for the second book. Um, but I think I feel like this. There's a bit more responsibility this time, so I'm telling broader stories, not just focusing on my family, which was largely what I was doing last time. Um, yeah, and I just I just hope there are you know, dorks like me 
that's really that's that's what I, that's that's what I want to find. I know that I, I've met a bunch of them from this first book. I, I know there are some some troubled people like me, and they, they will they will need to see other people getting it wrong so they feel better about their lives and can can move on. I was I was thinking when you were talking before that the book sounds like it's a really important book for young people today, young men. Especially young men, but young people today, I feel like it sounds like it sounds like it's an important book that you're writing. Oh no, thank you. Because uh, yeah, that's what I was hoping. Like I had this, this half idea of um, it being a good thing to to share these stories. There's also like some, there's a mad thing about satanic panic in the 1980s in Suffolk, which is like a just a weird extra story in there to keep it, you know. <laughs> I was I was convinced that I was going to find buried treasure and uncover a, a Satanist plot <laughs> when I was like nine years old. So I, yeah. you know, there's all, all that stuff as well. Like, um, and that there's, yeah, there's there's so many stories that I can I can tell. And I just hope I hope I get it right. Um, yeah, I'm confident I'm going to get it right. That's what publishers need to hear. Anyone <laughs> anyone listening to this, it's going great. It is interesting though. It's it's been in the the zeitgeist, the Twitter, whatever you want to call it, with Kathleen Moran recently talking about masculinity and Mm. her sort of thoughts on the fact that she doesn't think that men share or are open enough. And and I think that's quite an archaic way of looking at things. I I think that's changed a lot over the past few years. But, you know, that's in the circles and the friendship groups that I'm a part of, whether it's changing in a broader sense is is a different question i suppose it is hard to yeah because i've seen the the noise that's been made about that mm. book and broadly yeah, it's not going down well because no. it is this, this idea that there are no movies with with the the boy to man story arc and there's like there's loads of them there's loads yeah. of story, movies like the that and archetypes of... yeah it's like it's, it's, it's a standard like i don't I don't understand where she's got a lot of idea, her ideas about it from, but it doesn't seem to be from. Talk, I mean, she, she's in she's in the arts. You'd think she would be encountering more people like us, who are like sensitive guys who talk about this stuff. They have to be told to stop talking about this stuff <laughs> because it's mm. it's such a it's it's so open. And I, I know I know guys that talk about their feelings. You know, like I know I, I know the other side of it. Like my brother never talked about his feelings, and then he took his own life. And that's he is the example of the other side of that where there isn't that communication but even looking outside of our our arty worldview and our, our particular bubble i know of blokes who open up about that this kind of stuff you know it, it's her her ideas i've I, generally i've got nothing against i've read her previous books like i find I them quite it, amusing yeah. but um she yeah i think she's She's not done this justice. It's a, it's a missed opportunity. She could have written well, a really good it, book here. And... It's the idea of like brand Moran as well, I suppose, and, and what we were talking about earlier in, in terms of branding yourself and how your work relates to you know, topics that are p- part of the Twitter sphere and making people have a conversation about your work and all of that is like a, a larger point to what, to what you're saying, which is that when you get to a certain size like she is, you are almost writing with this idea that thousands of people, millions of people are going to read it and maybe Mm. you're trying to be controversial. You're trying to 
start a conversation about things. I don't know. It's interesting. Yeah, I mean, she, she's certainly got completely different challenges to me. She's got like an existing mm. enormous brand, an enormous audience, and a voice that's going to get heard. You know, regardless of the success or failure of this book, you know, there's there's going to be noise about it. Um, and she's got a whole weight of responsibility on her that's different to to mine. Um, yeah, I don't know. I think I think there was there's definitely a space for the kind of book she was trying to write, but I think she's she's not done it justice. And I suppose one thing it might it might put other people off writing a book like that when we need we need more books that examine men opening up and talking about their feelings and talking about their experiences and yeah it's 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 kind of frustrating for me to uh to to see the the missed opportunity there but i'm sure your work will will course correct it <laughs> oh yeah yeah that's <laughs> yeah that's, that's it it's like um i mean I'm, I'm hoping this one will be because of the the broader ideas it, it might it might be uh, a bit more widely read than the first one mm. because that was very geographically tied to mm. the, the northeast coast. So although I explored lots of ideas of masculinity and mental health and all that stuff, um, I think the geographic setting might have put some people off. So having it just broadly about all these different ideas of just a bloke wobbling his way through the world, getting things wrong is a bit more broadly relatable and maybe you know it would transfer uh globally in a way that a book about the east yorkshire coast might not wobbling is a lovely verb i'm very into that yeah <laughs> <laughs> on marketing um how we talked about it briefly earlier but i have been impressed with your ability to to come up with a new idea every day about relating that book to something that's going on. Um, I want to talk to you about taking photos on the beach in the in the East Coast. Um, oh, in the in the gold suit. Yeah. Where did the, where did that idea come from? Yeah. What, how how long did it was it before you went right? Let's do this and put it together and all that sort of stuff. As soon as I got the the deal, I was like, okay, I'm going to take some promotional pictures in that gold suit in the sea. It was the first thing I I thought. And I think I had it, like, in my head, I was standing up to my, my waist reading my book In the Sea. That was the visual that I had. And I, I got this gold suit for, um, I used to be a judge for the Manchester Fringe Awards years ago. And for the first award ceremony, the theme was glitz and glamour. So I, I, I didn't own anything glitzy. So I bought this gold suit off wish.com for 23 quid. And it turned up on the day of the awards, <laughs> and it's like horrible, sort of weird, rubberized. Feels very flammable that gold suit. Um, and I, yeah, put it on, did these awards, and it's like, okay, well, I've got a gold suit now. I need to do some more stuff with it. So I did a. Uh, Dave Haslam had this thing called the Words and Music Festival that was running out of the night and day a few years ago. I wore it for that, and yeah, did something for the Presswich Arts Festival. I wore it for that, and people would go, oh yeah, wear the, wear the gold suit. It became a thing that I. Um, I, I, I was getting bookings off the back of having a, a gimmick mm. and eventually because mm. you can't wash it um, uh, it began to stink because it's like a, <laughs> a rubberized suit it didn't breathe it's like okay well I'm going to go through with this photo shoot thing 
and the seam will be the thing that kills that suit I mean it will go in the bin afterwards and my girlfriend was really sick of me turning up with this gold suit because she's like you don't need a gimmick I think she was at that point where it's like you don't need this you're good enough on your own let's mm. let's kill the gold suit so um it's like okay well when I've got my first proofs we went off to to Filey to stay in my parents caravan and we got up or I got her up at 6 30 in the morning to go to um Flamborough Head which is at the top of the Holdenness coast where the beaches all kind of chalk and it's super quiet at that time in the morning. So I thought, because I don't want to be, I don't want to feel like a, a I don't want to feel like an idiot, he said, as the bloke who sat in the sea in a gold suit. But I, I, I didn't want people staring at me at the time. So I was, yeah, <laughs> it, was, it was very, <laughs> yeah, it just, it just seemed, it was ridiculous. Um, but I thought, yeah, I'll, I'll get it done then. So I, she like diligently took all these photos from different angles and um, we were there for, yeah, maybe half an hour and then we went down to Whitby and took some more and those photos have done so much good for me like I've always found ways to um, promote myself with them they've been in the Yorkshire Post like they've been I think they I think the Edinburgh Book Festival used one of them for something like they because once you see a bloke lying in the sea in a gold suit it sticks in your head and it's just a one of many images that I've had to try and try and use and it does it does feel like calculating sometimes mm-hmm. but you know what what else can we do you know we i don't have a i'm on an indie publisher we don't have a big budget we have lots of energy for it like saraband are great at doing everything they can within their their resources but we don't have you know big five publisher money we don't have you know bloomsbury money to promote me but we do have a 23 quid suit and a yeah you know, an iPhone, and we we can make this happen. So no, they, yeah, they are um, great. They, they 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 definitely do carry a lot of. A good photograph carries the meaning of the thing it's trying to represent, and those pictures tell the story of Coldfish Soup quite effectively. I think. Yeah, I would agree. Well, yeah, I, th- I think one of the things I was told um, early on with that manuscript that so many of those stories like one of the through lines through all of these stories was there was a probably as a result of being a bullied kid like there was a a need to be recognized and looked at and Mm. i I clearly wanted attention and there's a few things that um give you that more than putting on a gold suit and lying around on the beach and it's also sort of ties in with those ideas of my mum being a, an entertainer and me always admiring my mum and like wanting to be more like her like wouldn't it be great to be like this woman who's super confident and gets on stage and has no no problems doing it and sort of slowly realizing it's like actually like i spent i spent my whole life trying to be like my older brother who was you know a motorbike riding street fighting hard drinking bloke and actually the whole time all i wanted to be was my mum and this was the the realization of that, you know, and, and then I got to write about that for the Guardian, like write this whole tribute piece about my mum. Going, okay, yeah, I've, I've realized that this is, she's all I ever wanted to be, and I still, I, she, now I've discovered it. It's like, yeah, I just want to carry on being as tenacious as as she would be. Yeah, that's beautiful. That's lovely. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Right, we're we're running out of time. I want to talk a bit yep. about editing. 
because uh, that's me, that's who I am, I'm, I'm, I'm an editor, uh, <laughs> and obviously we're the Redraft podcast, so obviously you, you, you're working on a, yeah. a new, new stuff now, um, what's, what's the process of editing that like for you, are you showing it to other people, are you just doing it yourself? I'm going to um, put together probably three or four of the strongest essays. And then I'll show them to my girlfriend, who's a editor by trade, and um, cool. she and she's also a, um, a memoir writer. So she's she's got both of those hats, and she can look at my work and be really analytical. And then once I've got some feedback from her, polish them up a bit, and then I'll send them to my publisher and go, right, what do you think? You know, <laughs> should I carry on with these ideas? Um, and then work work on you know their their feedback. But I think my plan is also going to be to take them to spoken word shows and start doing more live stuff because yeah. that's always been yeah. I think it's the it's the only way you know it's it's the way it's the trustworthy way I came up. Coldfish soup. So many bits of that book were written for the stage and tested out there. So it seems stupid to ignore that formula. Mm-hmm. I know that I know that it works for me. I know that it's it's the best way to get that, like you were saying before, like you get that immediate feedback. Then there's nothing quite like it. Yeah. And yeah, if I get the kind of laughs I want, I'll know that I'm on the right path. I get that kind of that kind of weird silence that you sometimes get, which is not the this is really boring silence, but the I am listening silence. And you, when you, your ear gets into that, that's yeah. you yeah. know that that works. So I think yeah, that's it's going to be my my thing. And it's actually. One of the really reassuring things I, I learned early on when I decided that, that was the technique that worked for me is I went to see David Sedaris at Waterstones with my friend Kate, who is also like a great essayist. And he was talking about how he got started writing stories, get up on stages. He'd write a new story for every spoken word night he did. And he'd try it out and he'd tear it to pieces and write write new ones. And finding out that someone that successful worked in exactly the same way that you're doing in a similar medium, it's like, okay, well, it works for him. It's so far, it's working for me. And I know it's the kind of, I recommend it to everyone. Like, I, I know writers are a sensitive breed. And by default, we're probably the people that got bullied at school. We are the people who were. Uh, and, least likely to get up in front of people but it's so powerful you guys you know it's like it's, it's so powerful when you do it yeah and you discover so much about yourself and you accelerate your growth as a writer and it's like it feels like certainly for me and i think for a host of other people it's it's the best way to to become yeah. a sharper better more confident writer and eventually when you start promoting a book and you've got to go around bookshops yeah, and do events and all that stuff you need to need to know how to talk and sell yourself and if you've already been doing it on stages in pubs to drunk people who could shout at you or throw something that that builds up a bit of a um a confidence that would otherwise not be there stagecraft so i think and I, yeah stay and you, you 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 guys must have found it in your your day-to-day life as well does it add like an extra confidence mm-hmm. to you're outside of writing life because of what you do on stage, like. Well, hundred percent for me. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you say anything? Yeah. 
I would say the same because I'm, yeah, I just, because I'm not, I'm not, I would never, I wouldn't call, I wouldn't say I'm a confident person, but I think going out and doing open mics and stuff over the course of like two years is massively helped me in my, in, I, I, in just my yeah. everyday life. <laughs> so I'm usually just like an anxious little mess, but now I, yeah, I feel, I feel like it's, it's definitely giving me like a, sort of assurance of myself i, I genuinely yeah. don't know what sort it's kind of, of like person an armor i'd be without like i've been doing it on stages for seven or eight years or something like my, my entire post university life like i don't know what kind of adult human i would be without that armor that you said earlier of having gone up every weekend on a stage and tried to make people laugh or whatever i would be an entirely yeah. different person it's crazy it's 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 crazy, and it's like, and it's a world that not not a lot of people know exists. Mm. Like when I, I was happily writing stuff, and I had no concept of a a spoken word scene in Manchester. I'd lived here since 1997, had no concept that that existed. And my friend was like, "Yeah, go to this night, you know, it will probably change your life." And I met all of these amazing people, like um, like Fat Roland, who you know works at the, the Burgess now, but like him and Joe Daly and like uh, David Hartley and all these writers that I um, yeah, met, met back then who just were hugely influential for me. And this, this is this whole culture that's under the surface that you'd never otherwise hear about. But it's once you discover it, it's, yeah. it gives you a superpower. Mm-hmm. It's a thing that you would otherwise not have. I felt the same. Uh, as you know, uh, we've got the, uh, the big question here on the podcast. Um, on the redraft podcast, uh, which is if we gave you the chance to go back and rescribble, redo, redraft uh, an area of your writing career or your life, what what do you think that might be? Yeah, this is it. If it's life, I don't know. You see, this is the thing. My my whole um, my USP is. All of the mistakes I've made. <laughs> so, if I went yeah. back and changed anything, I'd have nothing to write about. You know, it, it, there's 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 juice to be squeezed from every single mistake and calamity and every problem that I've ever had. So, yeah, like I mean, there, there was a, a, a spoken word event I did in Rochdale, where I was hired to read this particular story, and I read it out loud in front again in front of this audience in Rochdale. And the organizer got a second mic and she shouted over me and she said, "This is too rude." And you need to stop. And she maybe get off the stage oh and walk God. to the back of the room. I stood there like a, a yeah, like I was, as like a child had been told off. What, what time of day was, like, was this? God, that, this, God. this was in the evening. What? But it was part of a. I think there was someone who was sixteen in the audience, so they they said, oh yeah, he's too he's too young to have heard of it. Like it's all the stuff that every kid, every sixteen year old has seen a certain amount of things you're on not, the internet. You know, you're not <laughs> that blue. Like. No, no, I wasn't. I wasn't particularly blue, um, but there was there was the odd sort of sexual reference in this thing. It was about this this girl that had come back to my house when I was a student and tried to seduce me in this very sort of clumsy way, and I didn't know what to do with it because it's like because I I would assume that you know if someone wants to seduce you, that's the best thing ever. And then it happens to you, and you go, actually, I wish I could just teleport through this wall and get away from this because it's horrible. But I, I, I was trying to find a way to make it funny and like not disrespectful to the person who was trying to flirt with me and like it, it was a, like a, a, a sort of cultured carved manicured story but it had the odd rude bit in it and i yeah, went to went to the back of the room and had to wait until the whole event was over just felt really 
you know, shameful. And later, loads of the people in the audience were like, okay, what happened at the end? We need they to know. The, they wanted to know the rest of the story. Yeah, they were, they, were, they were really invested in it. So I like was able to share this story and they gave me an extra fiver for the inconvenience of embarrassing me in front of the, uh, the audience. That was my biggest payday at the time, 25 quid. And, um, and I thought, God, this is, this is the worst thing ever. And like, even that, I would not take that away because I got to experience the absolute nadir of doing a spoken word show. The worst thing is that you could just get humiliated and essentially dragged off a stage and made to stand at the back like a dunce. Um, but again, yeah. that's, you know, it's a story. And if I can get someone to laugh at that, that's, that's something else. So, yeah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't change yeah. a thing. Joy France says the same thing, you know, and I, I, I admire that. Let me thank you on behalf of both of us for being so generous with your time and joining us. It's been an absolute pleasure to chat oh, to you. my pleasure. Um, and yeah, good luck writing the rest of the book. I'm excited to hear it uh, on the circuit, hopefully. And that was Adam Farah. What a inspirational chat. Lovely bloke, lovely man, brilliant book. Uh, go and buy it if you haven't already. Cold Fish Soup. It should be on your to-read list. There's also an audio version of it, which I think is amazing. Anyone that's done audio book work, I wanted to ask him about them. I'll have to get him back on at some point. A little audio special, maybe, because... Uh, yeah, it's amazing. I love that idea and taking those performance elements and, and turning them into a, a, a piece of audio work. So yeah, whatever medium is your preference, cold fish soup is more than available. <laughs> um, unlike that gold soup. Yes, absolutely. Uh, I, I love that chat. I loved hearing about the gold suit uh, <laughs> and the uh, the photos of the famous suit on the on the water with a book um, and the whole chat. Adam is such a, a, a lovely, kind uh, guy. Yeah, really yeah, enjoyed really it. really generous with his time. So we've got a few things to remind you of now, uh, which begins with the new edition of Nata coming up on a Wednesday this time. So that is a week tomorrow for you. Um, and that is, so yeah, that's on the 26th, as always, at the three guys, as always, lots of nice coffee and lovely treats for you. And we've, again, got a really exciting lineup, lots of new faces that I'm excited to, uh, to hear, and obviously mm. a few favorites returning as well. So get your tickets for that by going on our Instagram profile and on our link tree, you know the score. They're all free as always. Um, and yeah, we're excited to have you. After that, we've got, what well, we've got, Will? We've got you. We've got the CIC confidence workshop so a busy week that is the 29th um saturday at the uh bolton library or the old library where downstairs at the museum area um lecture theater and uh, i'm really excited about it i'm going to be delivering a workshop on all things confidence and the tickets are free so come on down um and we'll we'll have a natter we'll have a chat and we'll do some little activities and we'll get we'll, we'll get those spirits sailing high. I don't know where I'm going with this, but yeah, it'll be fun. It'll be good. <laughs> yes, I'm excited. Lastly. I'm excited. Lastly, we've got the Redraft Podcast live. Live. Live, baby. Live from the King's Arms in Salford mm. with myself and Will reading all new material for you and also in conversation with the fantastic Adam Evans of the Crisp Review. I am still going to bring my Portuguese crisps. Adam is still going to taste them. So get your tickets, come and see us and you might just nab yourself a cheeky crisp. Still looking like it's the last live show Adam's going to be at before he jets off to the Edinburgh Fringe as well. So 
I reckon he's in for a shout for Joker at a festival. So you want to get down early and 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 uh, experience that before before the mainstream does. Four pounds a ticket. Yeah, 100%. you can't argue with it. Hey, how are you Not feeling about the uh, about the all new poetry? Ah, oh, I'll tell you about that off off the record. <laughs> yeah, all right. <laughs> right, we'll leave it with that. Uh, we have been at the Redraft Podcast. I'm Will Stevenson. That's Romina Ramos. And we'll see you next week. Bye. Bye.